Imagineer. Everyone, and welcome to the fifth episode of the Hedgineer podcast, where we're discussing hedge funds, asset managers, prop trading, and the data and software that is built to enable these industries by interviewing the engineers, developers, and experts that are making it all possible. Uh, today, we have a, a special episode where previously we talked about the software side, the quant side, and the, the engineering that's going on behind the scenes. But in order to enable all of that, you need to first get the data from the outside world into your investment process. And to do that, there's a lot of work that goes on behind the scenes to make it possible. So bring on a industry expert and leader, uh, Rich Brown, both a friend and a colleague on today's episode to discuss uh, how you actually can manage data at scale at a large asset manager. Uh, Rich, really glad you're able to come down to Miami and join us. Yeah, thanks for having me. Nice. Um, so you've had a long career uh, within this space, uh, going back over 20 plus years. Would you mind giving us like a quick walkthrough on how you got to to be in the place that you are today? Sure. Um, I came out of college. Uh, I was doing sales for IBM and uh, about six years later, got the bug to do a startup and to switch over into financial services. So a buddy of mine and I started an independent research firm. Uh, which is basically a senior sell-side analysts that write buy and sell reports, industry reports, macro reports uh, for hedge funds and other asset managers. Uh, and we did that uh, for about four years or so. So we got to understand uh, from my perspective how the fundamental teams and the humans were actually using the, uh, the data. Uh, and then I went over to Reuters, which became Thomson Reuters and Refetitive, um, to flip it from the human use cases over to machines. And I ran a product portfolio there for quant and event-driven trading. So things like tick history, database, uh, machine-readable news, sentiment analysis. Uh, and I did that for about seven years and then went off to do some consulting in various uh, companies, still largely focused on data, and uh, switched over to the buy side about five years ago, uh, working for a couple of different multi-manager uh, shops. Uh, largely doing sourcing and procurement, managing the data team that would go out, find the data, bring it in-house for, uh, for the portfolio managers, both quantitative as well as uh, fundamentals. Mm -hmm. And this is a space that's evolved a lot over the years, I'm sure. I mean, it's evolved over the, the 10 years I was there. You got another decade on top of me. How have you seen it kind of change from when you first got into the space on the sell side to evolving to where you're working with these massive systematic as well as discretionary managers consuming every type of data possible. Yeah, if, if I go back to the, the beginning of my career at uh, Reuters and, and Thomson Reuters, machine-readable news was sort of like the, the newest thing that was out there, alternative data, and what you can do with it in uh, analyzing the text or sentiment analysis using some natural language processing techniques and even just parsing through uh, documents to pull out key facts and figures. Uh, you could do all that stuff now with machine learning models, with some AI behind it. It's really, it's, it's a lot easier. Uh, it was painful at the time to to produce the products, to train it on financial services, make it relevant for our customers. Um, and then at the time, we also didn't know like sort of what the react. We knew the customers wanted it, and we knew the customers wanted it tweaked a little bit for a certain use case, but they wouldn't tell us how they were using it or, or sort of what was driving the alpha. So we spent a lot of time and effort uh, working with quant analysts. So uh, we hired consultants, we hired interns, we gave the data out to PhD candidates to do the doctoral theses on. Uh, in order to just get some little nuggets, little breadcrumbs here and there that told us sort of what some of the folks were using in this space. 
And that part's evolved uh, quite nicely. And, and you can run it through some processes now very quickly to determine, you know, if there is likely alpha in the data set. So you want to qualify that very quickly and then ultimately turn it over to some folks that can really dig into it. Uh, the data engineers, the data scientists, and ultimately the portfolio teams that have that expertise in the, in the specific subject matter in order to, uh, to see if, it, if it's worth it for their particular portfolio strategies. If you can give a couple of uh, inklings on a, on, a co- on a company or a set of companies, um, you know, very important, very exciting stuff over the last few years. Oh, totally. And, and now it's getting that, that expertise somewhat in the use case of the data is getting more and more commoditized. So it makes it easier for a vendor to see what are the potential use cases for the data by also using some of the same data sources that maybe the buy side might be using. Like, there's nothing stopping a data vendor going into a service like FactSet or Visible Alpha. Visible Alpha specifically, you go in, you can look at what are the important KPIs for each ticker? You put in a ticker, it'll say like, these are the five most important KPIs that you need to know if you're a fundamental analyst. And they could then say like, oh, well, what are the historical actuals for these KPIs? And can I forecast what those KPIs would have been based off of my signal? And if you do, you might have something there, especially if it can outperform consensus. Now, consensus is never going to be perfect and we all know their biases, but at least they're they're there. That's a benchmark that you can that you can use. And there's nothing stopping a lot of these vendors now from just doing systematic back tests of the important KPIs that exist for companies and managing that expectation themselves. And they go into a sell side conversation with a buy side firm saying, oh, we can forecast same store sales or we can uh, forecast subs or we can forecast these bespoke KPIs for all these companies with a certain R squared. And yep. They're obviously going to then want to ingest that themselves, validate it, but you can really quickly get to the value prop right now if you're one of these uh, sell-side vendors. Yeah, and I think, I think in the early days, a lot of folks are trying to, to jump right from the data set to predicting the stock price. And there's a lot of issues and, and other factors that are in the middle of that um, that prevented the, the data set from being very easily usable for that particular case. And the consensus metric at the time might have been you know, earnings per share, and you've got consensus and obviously various analysts are putting out their their specific estimates. But by going now to the KPI, you can get a lot more granular. I need these kinds of data sets to predict this KPI. I need a different set of data sets to predict uh, the cost, for example, instead of sales and on the revenue side of things. And if you can sort of stitch that together with a, with a portfolio of, of data sets, some of those, probably many of those might be alternative data sets. Then I think the uh, the sophistication of your model and your investment process is much uh, much more robust. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of these shops, buy side shops, that are building a lot of this automation from the get go. From so from the moment a vendor gets an okay to be able to ta- trial a data set with a buy side shop, drop it in S3 bucket or place it in an FTB. FTB is a little bit old now, but like place it in a location, and the buy side might have like a systematic process to be able to ingest it, tag it do some basic normalization based off of demographics and then backtest it to one of these KPIs and see how it outperforms existing data sets. Or when you can combine an existing data set with this new one, is there a marginal performance improvement on forecasting some of these KPIs? So the buy side kind of has some of this automation. There's no reason why it doesn't just go to the sell side so they can do some of it themselves. Yeah, I mean, I think the, the difference um, that you'll see in, in licensing with some of these data sets, the vendors in many cases will not sell to the sell side because if the sell side is going to look at their data set and then basically broadcast it to all of its clients, 
the utility by going to a different, you know, buy side directly and giving them something that the sell side doesn't already give them, you know, you're, you're really eating your own lunch on, in that case. So a lot of times they'll focus mostly on the buy side and, and depending on the kinds of data sets uh, and maybe early in the vendor's sales cycle, they'll give it to the sell side so they can get advertisement and, and be able to get some, um, some, some free press on it. And then eventually pull back and then sell it directly to the buy side where there's a lot more opportunity for revenue. Totally. And one of the thing, interesting things is when I say sell side, I think of almost like an equity sales research is in some of these data vendors kind of in the same way. Because um, then you have an M science where it kind of sits in both of those seats. Um, so, so yeah, I guess that's what that's what I was referring to on, on the sell side. But you're starting to touch on the licensing side of the role. And when we're starting, starting to talk more about chat GBT and these large language models, creating these uh, weights that are trained off of various different data sources for some from the open web scrapes and some might be proprietary it starts to bring into question, what is the legality of creating some of these large language models if the underlying data it's being trained on may not have been uh, permissioned for that use case? And within finance, you have one of the largest walled gardens of information that exists when it comes to, to digital content. There's a lot of licensing and contracts around what you can and can't do. Some of this is not new. Um, and you know of you know it as well as anybody else. How do you, how are these firms or how do you think about what you can and can't do when you're starting to train models on top of data? Yeah, I mean, I, having worked on both the product side selling it and therefore creating the, the licensing restrictions as well as on the buy side when we're, we're looking to license the data, this is not a new problem. Um, this is an application use of the data. And in your contracts with your vendor, you need to make sure that you've got the ability to do that. Once you do that, however, and, and it's okay to run it through the machine learning models, put it through ChatGPT, what you do with it afterwards also has to be considered. So uh, you mentioned derivative work. So if you come up with an aggregated metric or a new flux capacitor for, for your particular alpha use case, you know that going into a quant model is different than it going onto the screens of maybe 50 portfolio managers that you have on your team. So you need to make sure that you're accounting for where that data is ultimately going including maybe out to your investors where you, you know, show them some information in a table, like even that stuff has to be licensed properly. So uh, it's not a new concept. Your vendor is going to know exactly what you're talking about. Um, and uh, if they don't, then you want an enterprise license and you want to use it however you see fit uh, kind of terms behind that. But most of the mature vendors have already tackled this problem. Mm -hmm. And one of the interesting, one of the interesting scenarios is it's no longer just a number on a table where you can tie that number back. It might be a derived thought that is in a sentence or in a paragraph that is based off of some of that data. So being able to do the direct connecting the dots just becomes harder. But as you're saying, it's not a new problem. It's just a different use case of a pre-existing one. Yeah. So typically you'd see on a derivative work in, in most of the legal contracts, a derivative work can't be traced back to the original thing. So it's not going to be a stock price of uh, IBM on a particular day, for example, that is going to be traceable back to where you got the data set. If it ends up being a conclusion that says you should buy IBM because of these different factors, um, that is that is going to be much closer to derivative work, which is which is fine as long as you have that particular component licensed in your contract. Totally. And I, I think one of the things that you might have a unique perspective on is what about these derived products that you might train a model from and create these weights in a large language model that 
that model is yours, but the data it was trained on might not have been, or you might not have had a license in order to create a derivative product on top of. And people talk about that when it comes to Copilot within um, any of like development process. Do you have the rights of these derivative products? But the same thing can be true with a model trained on financial data that you're licensing from somebody else. So how do you think about it? in terms of what rights you have in order to create a derivative trained model off of financial data? Yeah, so when you engage with the vendors that own the data that's going into the models, they usually have licensing in certain parameters. So more sophisticated vendors might have licensing based on the type of use case. So are you using this to redistribute information to your investors? Are you using this for humans and, and putting it on a screen? Or are you using it in applications or quant trading? Um, so those licensing concepts are new. This is, you know, ChatGPT and a machine learning model would be an application type usage of that information. So as long as you're able to do that uh, and have it covered in the license, it's something that uh, vendors are generally comfortable with, other than the, the hype behind ChatGPT right now. Um, what you do with it after that, however, in the derivative work, sometimes there's little, there's probably some complications in it that may hit um, how you use the data afterwards. So if it's into quant trading and you're executing trades on it, systematically no humans in the middle of it, then you know, those types of licenses are, are fairly contained. If you turn around and put that work into a screen and have humans, let's say you've got 100 analysts in your shop that are now looking at that derivative content, uh, you might have to have some additional licensing for that. So display rights on the, on the derivative products. Uh, but generally speaking, the, the vendors are pretty clear about those. If you're upfront with your vendor from the start on what you intend to do with it, uh, both in the case of you know, what you might initially try with it, the experimentation, research and development. And then as you move it into production and then production with viewers, um, you, you know, negotiate those deals appropriately so that as you scale up and, and discover more use cases, that you got the flexibility in the contract and don't violate the terms of it. Mm -hmm. And so I think I'm, I'm kind of curious, like when you start getting involved with a fund because if I'm a PM and I want to break out and go raise some outside capital and start deploying that maybe an SMA or um, a another structure, um, I don't first think of I need to hire a head of data sourcing and procurement. Uh, that's oftentimes not like what you should be focusing on from day one. But you eventually get to a point when you scale out and you realize that you have a lot of different contracts from a lot of different vendors, you're sourcing data from a myriad of different places, and the complexity there is starting to grow. And it might be an area where you're taking on liability for the organization by not being able to manage this appropriately. Um, when do you think a firm or a fund specifically is in a place where they start need to start thinking about hiring like a head of data procurement, head of data sourcing? And, and how do they even go about like thinking about that role and when you need it? Yeah, I would sort of, if you take it from the most simplistic perspective, if you're a portfolio manager and you're drowning in looking at contracts instead of focusing on your investments, it's time to get help. And whether that help is a dedicated person that's going to do sourcing and procurement for you or an outsourced firm that might help you with some of the contracts, you know, that's going to be a, a financial decision. It's going to be a stylistic decision and something maybe based on how proprietary you think the data that you're going to be sourcing is. But if it's vanilla things like a, an icon terminal from Refinitiv or a Bloomberg terminal, Everybody's got those. There's no proprietary nature of, of having a contract with Bloomberg or Refinitiv, for example. Uh, but as you start to scale out and, and some of the quant shops that might have hundreds or thousands of data sets in their models, you obviously need a, probably a whole team to, uh, to handle the procurement and licensing of that, the renewals, the vendor management, 
how you interact with the quants so that they understand um, some of the contract constraints and then how you understand what they need. So they might have a particular data set that's biased in a certain way. Uh, so they would tell the sourcing team, hey, I need to fill the gap here some other way. And the more that you interact with the, uh, with the data scientists, the quants, the fundamental people that understand what they're looking for and can communicate that with you, you know, that requires a little bit more dedication. Uh, some of that stuff is a little bit more secretive, and then you should have a dedicated, uh, at least a person or, or probably a team if you're a larger firm to, uh, to do that. Got it. What about smaller teams that are discretionary? They don't have a systematic strategy where they need to ingest hundreds of different data sources, but they want to go out and start engaging with either bespoke data providers or through an aggregator. Uh, that makes a lot of that a, a little bit easier. Do you kind of have a thought on using aggregators and when they're they're right for a fund? Yeah, I mean, I think there's there's two different approaches to the to the aggregation. One is aggregators of uh, data catalogs, what is available in the marketplace. So you're looking at uh, companies like New Data, like Eagle Alpha, Battlefin. Uh, so they'll have a, a large contact list of vendors, descriptions of what they do and the products, et cetera. Um, so that's one aspect around the sourcing aggregation. And then you have the second one, which is companies that actually aggregate the data so that you have a single API to, to program into. And I think um, you, the view that I would take in there is unless you're doing something super proprietary, you can go to the aggregators. If there's no extra alpha in what you're going to do to ingest the data, normalize it, make it ready for consumption, then just get the help. And so you can focus on the more higher value added activities that you would do as an analyst or a portfolio manager. And then once you start to get into the more proprietary stuff, you know, then you may want to uh, to engage uh, with some vendors directly and, and take in separate APIs. So we've mainly been talking about alternative data. What about traditional market data, like uh, tick data or historical prices? Do you get that from your broker when you're just starting out? Do you go through uh, Bloomberg or Refinitiv? And, and how do you kind of think about these other uh, traditional data sources and, and from a licensing perspective? Yeah, I mean, traditional data sources have been around forever, hence traditional. Um, and when you're a smaller firm, some of the brokers are able to give you that kind of content provided that they have the redistribution rights to it. Uh, but otherwise, like, there's no reason to go out and source that on your own and try to assemble it. You know, a, a standard data feed from Bloomberg, Refinitiv, FactSet, S&P Market, uh, all of those are going to be fine for most people's needs. Uh, certainly no need to go out and connect directly to the exchanges and having to normalize all that information. Um, so again, focusing on the core competencies, uh, these things are standard procedures. It shouldn't take that that long to integrate to those APIs. And, and whether you're talking about live pricing data, reference data, all of those are available from these uh, from these traditional vendors. Got it. So let's stick a little bit more on the alternative data side. Um, how do you know as a investor or a data science team or a data engineering team whether or not a data source is going to be valuable? Uh, and, and what are like some of the best practices that you've seen process-wise, technology-wise, in order to evaluate data vendors, if they make sense for you? Yeah, I mean, the first part of it is going to be understanding what you're actually looking for. So if the portfolio manager can communicate to the sourcing team, hey, I need something that solves this particular problem in my portfolio. I'm blind or I can't see as well into this area. And it might be new store uh, sales volume or it could be, you know, web traffic on a new website. Um, if the data sourcing person or a data hunter, as they're sometimes called, uh, they go out into these conferences, they start to meet with vendors. Uh, there's something in the in the space called speed dating. Uh, so you would typically do a series of back-to-back -back meetings, 15 minutes each tops, to qualify these data providers and see if it's worth having another 
uh, meeting with them, a more in-depth meeting. Um, you can also search their catalogs uh, on keywords. And if you're looking for credit card information, for example, you do a query into one of these catalogs and you might get seven to 10 uh, contenders for, uh, for credit card data. Then you meet with them, understand where they are selling into, which particular geographic areas or, or, uh, or uh, different companies that they might have an expertise in, see if that matches what the portfolio manager is looking for. And then eventually uh, you would uh, likely sign a non-disclosure agreement and uh, bring in data to trial. When you do that, it has to go through a number of different processes in the firms. Um, so are you able to trial the data? Can it pass the compliance test? Uh, so they do, the compliance team would do something called a due diligence uh, process or DDQ, due diligence questionnaire that the vendor fills out. And that information covers things like how do you source the data? Where does it come from? Do you have the rights to be able to sell it into this particular use case for analysts, for example? Uh, and if they get comfortable with that, uh, then they can bring in the data, uh, turn it over to the data engineering team, uh, whether it's a Snowflake uh, kind of repository, an S3 bucket, or flat files, uh, which are pretty common as well. The engineering team would bring it in, uh, prep it for analysis by the uh, by the teams, either quant teams or, or fundamental teams. Uh, sometimes there's uh, somebody called a sector data analyst or, or an expert in that particular sector, healthcare consumer, for example, that might take the data, understand it a little bit better and how to present it in a uh, more consumable format for the portfolio manager. Um, then they run it through its rigor, see where it works, where it doesn't work. Uh, and then ultimately decide if they want to uh, to move forward with the contract. And based on the feedback that the uh, that the teams collectively, the the engineering team, how hard is it to ingest? Um, how hard is it to interpret by the portfolio teams? How much extra scrubbing is in there? How consistent is the data? All of that information would go back to your data sourcing and procurement team and help them with the contract development. Um, so if the data is inconsistent or it doesn't arrive all the time when it's supposed to, you might put in some service level agreements into the contract to protect yourself and give you an out if the if the data set becomes problematic. If it um, if it's only in a particular area or their their consumer panel, for example, is pretty small, but they've got great growth plans, you might put in some clauses that suggest a product evolution and and maybe lower rates in the beginning until you get to the panel size that you want. So there's a lot of different things that are in there that can protect you, and and certainly one of the most common would be you know, maximum price increase. Um, and what, what uh, most people hate is that when they get hooked on the data set, the vendor finally realizes what they have and then they up the price by two or 300%. Um, that generally doesn't go over well with the portfolio managers, the procurement team, et cetera. So the more that you can put in those price caps and some other terms that might be favorable and protect in the long-term, uh, the better you're gonna be for that. And so where do you see the space going? Like from here, that's um, evolved a lot. And there's never been a larger demand for data within an investment process. How do you see things changing over the next five to 10 years and how data is consumed? Yeah, I think the, the consumption patterns from an engineering perspective, I think Snowflake will be a, a big part of it. Any kind of standards that emerge on uh, the data formats, the ingestion processes, using uh, machine learning and even ChatGPT to format files and, and make things easier to consume. That stuff's a natural. I think from a data set perspective, you're going to see a lot more data sets coming in internationally. Uh, the U.S. is a fairly mature alternative data market. Credit card data is everywhere. You've got um, you know millions and millions of folks that are in the in the panels. Anonymous, of course. The you know hedge funds don't care who they are. They just want to know how many people are in Walmart versus Target. Um, but the frequency of that information, how quickly it updates, uh, how broad the sectors are, I think be it becomes important. 
uh, and just take you back to like the 2014 area, uh, I was doing some consulting for a defense contractor and they were looking for ways to take their signal intelligence products and make them um, available in, in the private sector. So we started looking at um, understanding where people were by tracking their location using cell phone tower triangulation. Now, if you've ever experimented with any of that stuff, there is a 900 meter um, issue of accuracy and you'll end up seeing a lot of dots if you're looking at the maps in the middle of cornfields uh, instead of the Walmart parking lot, for example. Um, so those use cases got to be a little bit more problematic and um, GPS precision hadn't been there at the time. It was, you know, it was on the horizon, but no significant use cases uh, for the for the telecom providers to actually uh, give that data out. Uh, and now you can get someone down to six, six meters or so, six feet in some cases of accuracy, and you can get them a lot more frequent so you can understand how long they're at the, uh, at the particular location. And, and that's, that's one of the things, if you draw that parallel into anything else that, um, that might be out there, the granularity of healthcare data, for example, um, that's going to be pretty interesting to see when you can track a drug through the pipeline approval process, where it's penetrating uh, in its uh, in its trials, and obviously where it's starting to sell, which particular pharmacies are, are selling more of it and drawing those trends over time. Um, those are going to be pretty interesting data sets. Uh, the expansion of consumer credit card um, swipes, if you will, in Europe, that's an area that's blossoming right now. Uh, you've got a lot of different jurisdictions and you've got a lot of different banks and that would that would control some of this information. Uh, so it's hard to assemble in Europe than, than what it was in the U.S., uh, and then alternative data in Asia is going to explode too, um, as long as people are, are still keeping the privacy concerns in check. How do I think about the differences in privacy requirements from Asia to the EU to the states? I'm familiar with GDPR. Does Asia have a similar policy? Yeah, there, there's... Uh, I mean, I say Asia is like it's an entire country, but like, how do, how do I think about privacy at a global scale? Yeah, and I think that's where it gets a little bit more complicated because you do have... Uh, various jurisdictions in Asia. Asia is not one place. You've got a lot of different country laws and and different data privacy concerns. But if if you simplify it to the fact that you don't want anybody's personal information, um, start with that and then work your way into how you can use data that is anonymized or pseudonymized, um, where you would be able to track an individual, not by name uh, or or any specific demographics of that person. But you would get a, an anonymous hashed ID and be able to track that person going from a Target to a Starbucks, for example. Um, then you can start to develop cohorts around where else they shop and things like that. That particular piece is where the regulations are split in different geographies uh, and regulatory areas. So in some cases, you have to be fully anonymous, and in which case you're aggregating. These are the number of people that hit a particular store in a given time block. Uh, and you don't have the ability to get granular into uh, into where else they might be going. Um, but I do think uh, if if you do that, you've got to get specialized lawyers. The lawyers have to have international connections, so they understand the laws in each of these uh, in each of these locations. And uh, it always helps to you know be on some of the uh, the legal bulletins, compliance bulletins that are out there. So there's a lot of information that's free in the marketplace, uh, and a lot of studies that are that are in this uh, area where you can go to and, and not go to and and. Generally speaking, as these data products come to market, the vendors should have already solved for those types of issues, and then you're there to validate that what they're saying is indeed uh, is indeed legitimate. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, earlier, you had mentioned the use of Snowflake as part of a common platform that a lot of these vendors are using. But there's a lot of Snowflake competitors when it comes to data marketplaces from the 
platform as a service side. Amazon has their, their data marketplace. Google's pushing doors with a lot of different collaborations. There's Databricks. Um, do you see them as competitors to some of these data aggregators, or do you see them more as uh, complementary to uh, a data aggregator, some of these larger data vendors? Well, I, th I think it really depends on the value add. So you can get a data set in Snowflake, but you may not know how to use it or interpret it or what it compares to for other data sets that might be out there. Um, so the, the aggregators bring some of that information uh, to light. And then when you start to think about, you know, what's the support organization when you have an outage, some of those aggregators are going to do it better than others. And if you can have someone that, uh, that you call that might be uh, managing 20, 30, 200 of your data sets, um, you know, it makes it a lot easier on your technology team to be able to have one, one throat to choke, if you will, uh, when it comes to outages and things like that. Uh, but, you know, an Amazon marketplace will compete with Google, will complete, uh, compete with, uh, with Snowflake. Um, and as a vendor, it, one of the challenges that you have, where do I put this? Uh, and the answer generally is wherever the customer wants. Um, so we're starting to see some other players out there that will help you migrate it from a Google to an Amazon instance or, or get it into Snowflake for you using some machine learning and some automation in those processes. Um, so from a vendor perspective, it's going to be a lot easier to service a multitude of clients and give it to them how they want it. Uh, if you still end up having to support it, and if you don't know the sort of the interlinks and how that was translated, you're going to end up going down a couple of rabbit holes in the, uh, in the meantime. Uh, so the more that you can simplify the files and make them fully understandable, tons of documentation and, uh, and standard support procedures uh, from a vendor perspective, that's what I'd recommend. Totally. And I love the idea of commoditizing the cloud. Like it's in Amazon, it's in Google, it's in Snowflake, it's available for Databricks. Being able to move dexterously across those, I think, is a place where a lot of technology firms are getting to, or at least the, the providers of data uh, are getting to. Yeah, especially if you look at the economics of, of a certain cloud. I mean, if you can go for non-peak time uh, kind of rates and, and move your processing around, especially during the backtesting, stage when you're going to run a whole mess of calculations and, and burn a lot of CPUs and storage, like, you know, that you need the flexibility. And if, and if you need to do it in Google instead of Amazon, you need to have that flexibility to move it around and, and move it around seamlessly. Mm -hmm. And I think you're, you're touching on a point that we've collaborated on in the past is how do you think about the all-in costs of some of these data sets? Like one element of the cost is the vendor license, but then there's the human uh, labor that's required for analyzing, coming up with signals, the ingestion, also the cloud compute for, for some of this stuff. How do you think about the overall costs of a data set that exists beyond just the cost to be able to bring it in-house? Yeah, I mean, you mentioned obviously a number of the, the main components of it. Data itself is going to cost a significant amount, but I think the piece that you really have to look at is what is the opportunity cost? So if you're going to put a $350,000 engineer or something at a data set for X number of weeks or months. And then you're going to have um, the data set itself, which could be 10000 to a $1 million, let's say. Um, and then you end up having the engineering and the support, the ancillary compliance and legal procedures, et cetera. You can come up with a formula on that. Um, but what you, what, what's much harder is, did I pick the right data set? And is that one going to produce more alpha than something else? Um, so it's a really hard data set. I think there's value in it. Uh, or here's a simpler data set. I know there's value in it. So can I get 10 of those through the pipeline faster? And that's one of those, uh, you know, it's an age old, age old challenge there. Um, and certainly not an easy problem to solve when you're on the sourcing side of it, or you're one of the quants that's interacting with the sourcing team. How do I get things through the queue faster? Can I get some operational alpha 
by bringing on the data sets an average of one week sooner through the sourcing, uh, compliance, legal process, and ultimately the engineering ingestion and then normalization. If I could do that a week sooner across 50 data sets a year, and the average data set makes me X dollars, like you can actually quantify you know, the operational efficiencies that you can get out of some of the automation and process improvements that you put in place in a more mature kind of data organization. Uh, but ultimately, you know, it, it comes down to, you know, what are you choosing to ingest and why are you choosing to ingest it? What's the biggest risk in your portfolio? What's the biggest alpha opportunity for you? And that is probably going to dwarf anything you're talking about from a, you know, cost of the engineer or cost of the procurement team perspective. Mm-hmm. And it's a game of speed and speed's the name of the game. And you're not the first person to talk about uh, how important speed is. Lucas, uh, we had on maybe two episodes. We were talking about the usage of an engineer, a quant, a domain expert, all being able to work seamlessly together for the purposes of being able to move fast. You have an idea, you can test it, you can evaluate it. And if it has legs, you can deploy it. And how can you make that cycle faster? Um, And it's the same thing with being able to evaluate data opportunities that exist. How quickly can you get from the moment that you get it in the door to be able to evaluate it and say you want to move forward or not? And and there's also the element that you're touching on, the operational alpha, that maybe is before that. How quickly can you evaluate to determine can you get it in the door from a compliance perspective? Yeah, it's can you get in the door? Is is it even worth bringing in the door? And while the sourcing teams typically don't have a lot of the quant background and, and they're not opening up the files and doing the back test themselves. Uh, a lot of times the good ones can sniff out some BS when they see it and, and they'll ask a couple of qualifying questions. They'll understand where the biases are and then not even bring it to the teams for a trial. Um, so that's the first step of the first line of defense in that, uh, in that set. Uh, the other piece too is if you think about like, can you get a smaller team that's going to, that's more of a SWAT team and they're just going in and ripping through the data set and setting up some standard benchmarks to look at the frequency of the updates, how regular they are, where the seasonality is, where the gaps or, or maybe biases have been influenced, and then ultimately run a quick back test to see if it generates any kind of profits. If you can do that effectively and then move it into a deeper uh, study that uh, if you're qualifying the data set and it passes that initial bar, then invest the extra time in it maybe the more expensive labor, the better data engineers, and then certainly in, uh, getting it to the portfolio manager and analysts who need to make decisions on it. Totally. Have you seen any good use cases right now of AI doing some of that evaluation for you? I know there's there's one company out there that I've heard a couple people mention they have a great onboarding process, Balyazny, and they have a portal, you upload the data to the portal, they do really quick evaluations. I've heard of a couple other firms um, do a good job at it. Uh, but have you seen the usage of um, AI using um, anything new in order to evaluate data sets really quickly and provide answers? Yeah, that th- you can look at a couple of the the opportunities in AI or even just machine learning in general. Um, there are data sets that sort of look the same as other ones. If it's a credit card data set, you know, the next credit card data set coming in, it's going to have a, a potentially different sequence. You can normalize the metadata and then run it through the same kind of processes. Um, any type of work like that that you can do to augment the human's ability, um, generate some Python code, for example, or have some standard um, set of um, scripting and stuff that you run it through, all of those are going to help bring it in much uh, much more quickly. Uh, and I think a lot of the excitement around like ChatGPT or stuff is, is amplifying the human's ability to be able to work through a data set faster, find an answer, understand uh, a couple of episodes ago, you had the uh, portfolio risk, what what those are looking like. 
And and one of it is uh, a portfolio risk, risk decomposition. And the other one might be looking at things on the internet and understanding there's some kind of theme that's developing in social media that poses a threat to your largest holding. You know, those kinds of things, like finding the, the unknown unknowns is, uh, is really where I think the exciting possibilities are in, uh, in this space. Mm-hmm. Well, on the topic of using a AI model to really quickly create a factor within historical returns and have that factor be something that an investor manager is thinking about in terms of their exposure. So could you say like in a portfolio, oh, what is my China exposure? And have the portfolio be able to quickly define like a small, um, a small and large portfolio that has China exposure, add that as a, a back test, see what the returns are, add that in as additional factor that you might have within your model. And see, what is your volatility exposure to, to this China factor that automatically kind of creates for you on the fly and then tells you what, uh, what it is in, in human language, I think is, is really interesting. Then say, all right, well, are there any data sets that are really good at explaining that China factor that I'm not aware of right now? Yep. Going against a, a catalog and being able to really quickly kind of identify that or surface that for you. I mean, that, that'd be a dream. That'd be awesome. Yeah, I mean, I, th- I think your first set of examples are very relevant. That standard portfolio analysis, risk construction kind of techniques. Um, to the extent that you said, what's my China exposure? And you said, I'm using four data sets that are, uh, that are in China or relevant to the, to the China exposure. And right now, three of them are coming under scrutiny by the regulators. Um, that's an interesting one because if, it, if you end up going dark on those data sets, then what's your exposure? Um, so to the extent that any model can, can look across those dimensions as well, it's not, maybe, it maybe it's not about finding the next data set for China. Maybe it's about understanding the regulatory risk against your current data sets. And, and that's where some other exciting areas are coming into play as well. Totally. Uh, do you use JetGPT at all in, in your processes? Have you, have you been messing around with it? I have been. Uh, I've got a couple of research projects in the background, and, and I'll ask it some things. And I, I think the the one thing that um, that I'm looking for uh, improvements on is the recency of how of when it's trained. So if you ask it a question about something that's recently happened, it hasn't been trained on that data, and you'll come up with the wrong answer. There was someone on uh, on LinkedIn that asked about the SVB issue, and it was like, and it said it was a great bank and and you know fully uh, solvent and everything else. So. Um, those kinds of things, I think, um, present some problems. But what I really am interested in seeing um, is how the financial services firms are going to deploy this to to augment the human intelligence. And, and Bloomberg, obviously, as you know, uh, they developed like the largest language model in this space. Um, and they can do that because you, you're actually training it on very specific context. So it won't get confused by a whole bunch of other stuff that's showing up elsewhere versus in financial services with data sets that it's known to produce results. Um, uh, conference call transcripts, broker research, et cetera. So when you define a relatively narrow set of, uh, of uh, information that you're going to explore and, and uh, what you can do with that, I think the potential to augment Bloomberg's terminal is great. I think um, Citadel had made an announcement where they're looking for an enterprise license for Jet, chat GPT. If you can put that in the hands of the hundreds of portfolio managers that are over there, they've got some great opportunities. Um, visible alpha, on uh, on sell side research uh, has an opportunity to to exploit that a bit, and then um, AlphaSense would be one of the other ones I, w- I would watch for. They just recently raised a bunch of money. They've got a lot of the content that's out there. They've got the broker research. They've got uh, certainly the news, the social media posts, etc. And if you can deploy that kind of content behind the company firewalls, where people can put in their own research notes and their investment theses, and then train it further. I think that has a, a potential for great uh, exploitation in financial services. 
Totally. And it'd be interesting almost, does Microsoft get into that space as well? Because you have all of your PowerPoint, Excel, Word, Outlook on Microsoft Azure Cloud, oftentimes if you're using Office 365, and can Microsoft then have a flip of a switch, say like, hey, let's take all of our enterprise-wide knowledge that you already have stored on our file systems, train some models and be able to answer some questions on top of it. Um, so I think if you, if you start small and grow fast in that kind of concept, like a lot of the Excel models, the financial models that the analysts are using are based in Excel. Uh, and if you can sort of normalize those across um, different sell-side brokers, for example, kind of like Visible Alpha is doing, uh, if you can normalize it across industries and, and even help the analysts start up their process. So a new analyst comes into a firm, here's all the historical models in the format that you want them, go get it from all the different files that existed with the previous three analysts in the role, or if you have central databases of, of that kind of stuff in your firm. The faster you can get that portfolio manager up to speed and launching, in a particular set of companies, uh, the faster you can actually create return out of that instead of having her or him sit on the uh, on the sidelines while they're building out, you know, 20, 30, 40 models of, of companies that they want to follow. Mm -hmm. And then one of the things that's cool is once that's up and running, you could then have a team of analyst associates kind of keeping that up to date with their own internal insight and then normalize, surface it to one kind of master PM. They can look at multiple different sectors, multiple different um, investment ideas and have all that information kind of surface just to, to one person. Um, and at the same time, have a model just normalized out on the sell side. One of the things the analyst oftentimes or associate is going to spend a lot of their time doing is updating after a report. Yep. What is the new consensus or what, what was the actual how of consensus change? There's no reason why they're doing that in a there's some systems that automate that pretty well, but there's no reason why they're doing that in, in six months from now. Yeah, if you push a button, like, you know, automatically import all that stuff and show me where the divergence is. Why does Morgan Stanley think this, right? Or why is Morgan Stanley's number an outlier? Then you have a, you know, a conference call or something with the analyst. Maybe she or he's got something important that's a little different than what other people are saying in the space. So uh, part of it is around the reported earnings and a and, uh, much more important part is going to be what the forward outlook is. And that forward outlook, I think, is where you're going to see some deviations and want to explain those across models. Totally. And that's when the alternative data side can kind of start coming into play. And I think that's one of the things that you're, we mentioned it a little bit earlier, that a lot of these providers of data are starting to connect the dots between what is the data they actually have? What is it being used to forecast? And it's not price action. It's these fundamental metrics that are used to be able to evaluate the company, which then price action might be derived from, from a portfolio manager's perspective. Yeah. If, if you think, uh, you know, on a given company, you might have hundreds of different factors that are in there. And, and depending on the company, the, the sector and stuff that they're in, there's going to be a set of data sets in the alternative space that, that, could, uh, that could lead to some other kinds of inclusions. Whether the data set itself is predictable of ultimately the pricing action, um, some of those are a little second and third uh, order removed, but it might help you ask a lot better questions when it comes to the analyst conference call on the quarterly earnings. The the CEO is saying one thing, but your data is leading you to a different kind of conclusion. You can ask that kind of intelligent question, potentially in private, because you don't want to tip your hand to uh, to everybody else. But those kinds of things, I think, will help uh, uh, keep a better analyst uh, in their seat and interpreting whatever comes out of ChatGPT and whether or not that's true or or misleading. So, Rich, we've talked about alternative data. We've talked about traditional data. We've gone the AI route. And then the fourth subject that we always chat on is crypto. Um, what are your thoughts on data within the Web3 blockchain space and 
what are some use cases that you see for it? How do you see the space evolving? Um, let's go from there. Um, so it's basically an interesting area. There's lots of potential in distributed ledger technology, or DLT, blockchain, if you will. And uh, some of the use cases, obviously, are coming in on derivatives contracts. Uh, there's use cases out there for real estate, for insurance. Um, some of those are a little bit more hype right now, and a lot of people are experimenting with it. You don't quite need blockchain and the expense that comes with it. Uh, but what is happening, though, there's, there's different providers like Chainlink or Pit that are bringing the data that's off-chain onto the chain. So it might be pricing data or attestations or, or other pieces of information that are critical for smart contract execution. Uh, so they're bringing those onto chain. And if you can sort of take a, a, a set of standards there and, and one of those players or maybe somebody else emerges as the winner in that space, regardless of the use case, getting that data off-chain to on-chain presents a tremendous amount of opportunity. Uh, so I'm pretty excited about uh, seeing how things develop in that space. Totally. And, and what, the one use case where Web3 crypto has really filled is in finance. Like it naturally works for securitizing whether it is a DeFi protocol or it could be some like off-chain um, assets and making it immediately fungible, tradable, uh, providing liquidity on chain. So like if there's anywhere that it's going to continue to thrive, it's within the growth of financial services. And I see you as an expert on the data side in traditional finance, being able to provide a lot of like unique insight in a space where there's not a lot of adults in the room. And by bringing somebody that has spent a couple decades He's been there. He's done that. He's seen that problem before. Uh, there's not going to probably be a lot new that you haven't seen. It's just a new type of technology. Yeah, I mean, from from my perspective, the the Wall Street financial data, pricing data, getting them on a chain, that's going to be fairly standard. Uh, what excites me uh, a little bit more is seeing how do you take uh, receivables and supply chain and goods being shipped around the world uh, and get them onto the chain, and what use cases are developing for that where you can actually take the decentralized finance kind of capabilities and sell receivables. Um, you can sell and, and trade different items in real world assets. Non-fungible tokens are, are pretty interesting uh, from that space as well. So uh, from my perspective, it's a whole new area that, uh, that has potential, uh, keeps me awake at night from an excitement perspective, not a stress perspective. Um, but I am uh, pretty interested in seeing how this space develops over the next five to 10 years and sort of where the regulators are going to step in and, and say that is actually trading and should be regulated. Uh, I think crypto is going to come under um, under that uh, quite a bit in the next few years. So Rich, you're working on all these different things over the, the past 20 years. What are you working on right now? Uh, yeah, it's interesting. So one of the things we talked about is operational alpha and how you can get the data sets into the firm and into the hands of the consumers more quickly. Um, so I'm working on a series of uh, tools and capabilities in order to bring the data in-house much more quickly to discover what might be out there, to be able to uh, have the portfolio managers or consumers request that data, get it through legal compliance and engineering more quickly. Uh, so a lot of the workflow, the processes that that are involved in there are looking to automate that kind of capability and then go out and then deliver those into uh, into the corporate world, into the hedge funds, et cetera. Um, so when you combine that with some of the other capabilities around data management, like how do you maintain vendor relationships and understand the important conversations, a CRM type of solution or vendor relationship management type of solutions, those things that you have in an email that's buried 20,000 emails ago, like I want to surface that for my next negotiation because that's going to be a leverage factor for me. So keeping track of those important conversations is going to be um, useful as well. And then if you can put it all into something that makes it a little bit more streamlined to the portfolio teams, to the corporates, you know, your contract's coming up. Do you like the data set or not? Do you want to renew it? 
Um, so all of the uh, the comprehensive tools in order to run a data management uh, function much more effectively. Awesome. So if anybody has any questions about that, what's the best way to get a hold of you? Yeah. So uh, find me on LinkedIn and uh, look me up. Awesome. Well, love that. So with that, let's call it a day. So thanks everyone for tuning in to the fifth episode of the Hedgineer podcast. I'm your host, Michael Watson, and you can follow us on Instagram, YouTube, Twitter, LinkedIn, uh, or check out the Slack channel where I'm working all day. I'm happy to uh, discuss any of the topics that we discuss in the show or anything else you're interested in. Uh, you can find us at hedgineer.io slash Slack. Um, and I'm hoping you tune in for episode number six. Thanks, everyone. Hedgineer.